Well, that children's sermon was from Ephesians, and just a uh, quick note to say that after I spend a little bit more time in Psalms, I'm hoping to preach through Ephesians next. And uh, Ephesians is a wonderful book, full of very practical instruction for us, and I can't wait to study it with you and to see the fruit of that practical instruction. But the Psalms are not impractical. The Psalms have plenty to you show us and teach us. And it just so happens that if you look up the first verse of Psalm 34, and you find the first footnote, it's a cross-reference, not a footnote, the first cross-reference. It is in my uh, Bible here, referring you to check out Ephesians, Ephesians 5.20. We've already read Psalm 34, and that first verse starts, I will bless the Lord at all times. And so then it says, hey, check out Ephesians. And so you can go to Ephesians 5.20 and it says, well, I'll go back, verse 18 in the middle picks up, it says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms. So you see how it's connected right there. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And then, here's the verse that it was referring us to. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. And so somebody was reading the Bible, and they read, and they read, and they read, until they knew the Scriptures well enough that they could read Psalm 34 and think, hey, that reminds me, that reminds me of Ephesians 5, where, where the command is to sing, you remember that? And, and the Psalms, and that we're supposed to always give thanks. Bless the Lord at all times, always. That's how it starts, always. The psalmist is David in this case, who wrote this. King David, the famous, the great king, the man after God's own heart. David was not like <clears throat> the young man I once watched in my high school. I remember this distinctly my freshman year walking out. I had been in gym class. Left gym class, walking down the hallways in Bloomington High School South. And I heard somebody, oh yeah? And I looked over. And one man walked up to the other man. 
without a word. And he threw him over his shoulder in a perfect WWE wrestling move and left him lying on the ground behind him and proceeded to continue walking without a backwards glance. Nobody had had a chance to even say anything. It was just enough time to look, be shocked, and watch him walk off without a care in the world. Now, you might be asking why he did that. And I was asking the same question. There was one thing I knew for sure. There was a backstory here. Right? There was a context. Somebody doesn't just walk up to somebody else and in one second leave them unconscious on the floor behind them and keep walking unless something has prompted it, right? Something has to have prompted it. There was a backstory, and I was missing it. I was missing the context. It just so happens there's a story behind this psalm. It was written for a reason. There is a context. And we're told the context. And it's almost as dramatic as somebody walking up to somebody else with apparently no provocation and throwing them to the ground. A psalm of David when he feigned madness. Now, do you kids know what it means to feign madness? I see some of those hands. Who knows what it means to feign madness? All the redheads want to answer today. Go ahead, Wit. To pretend what? To pretend that you're crazy. Now, there's only a little bit of the story given to us, right? We know from this that David pretended to be crazy before Abimelech. And then it continues and gives us a little bit more. It says, who drove him away and he departed. But if you go back and you read in 1 Samuel the story... There's a lot more to the context. This is just trying to remind you of the context. So the context is that David is running away for his life, fleeing from King Saul, who he had served faithfully for many years, who he had never rebelled against, and never done anything wrong to. King Saul, who, whose daughter, Michael, David was married to. So King Saul, his father-in-law, right? King Saul's trying to kill David, and David's been running all over the place, fleeing. And finally, he goes to the Philistines. And the Philistines were the enemy of the Israelites, not just an enemy, but the enemy of the time. And he gets taken before the king of Gath, King Achish. Abimelech may be his title. And 
he realizes he's in trouble. Because Gath is where, who was from Gath? Do anybody remember who? Go ahead. Goliath was from Gath. Goliath was from Gath. And there was a context. There was a background, a story with David and Goliath. Goliath, the hero of the Philistines from Gath. Goliath, whom David had killed. The Philistines were defeated that day because of David and his faith in the Lord. And so, now David is feeling like he's safer in Gath than he is in Israel. That's dramatic. There has been a rapid change of events. Everything is different from the way it used to be. But he realizes that he's really not very safe in Gath. And so he decides that he's going to pretend to be crazy as he's taken to the king. The king of Gath looks at his men who bring him to his presence. And David is drooling down his beard. The slobbers dripping onto the ground. Now that's acting crazy. Right? Have any of you ever pretended to be a dog before? Okay. I've done that. Anybody? Only I don't think a few. Okay. Oh, I see those I see those hands back. You've pretended to be a dog. You would make a good dog. Now, have you ever pretended to be a dog so so perfectly that you actually are drooling? Anybody? Maybe got a, got a couple of maybe hands out there. Okay. I've never done that. Only I've ever done that. David knew that he had to pretend like his life depended on it. He had to be very, very convincing as a crazy man. And he was convincing. So convincing that the king of Gath said to his counselors, his men who thought this was quite the achievement to bring him David. What? Don't I have enough crazy men around already? Which I always thought was quite funny because the implication seems to be that he's calling his counselors who bring David to him crazy <laughs> for bringing him the crazy man. Okay, so that's the context. And then you've got the psalm. The context, you're expected to know and it's just reminding you quickly. And so I didn't go back and read you the whole story. I just told it to you. But you have to know the whole story to really get the psalm, to make sense of it. And if you don't know the story, you're missing the context. Now, there's one other thing that you might miss because you can't see it in your translation into English. But there's something else that really stands out about this psalm in the Hebrew. And that is, 
that every verse, well, almost every verse, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, starting with Aleph, the first verse, okay? And so that's called an acrostic. Do kids know what an acrostic is? Now you know. It's when you write a, a poem, maybe, a psalm, and if you were to write your first verse and it said, Awesome is the Lord. And the second verse said, Beautiful is his name. Anybody come up with the third verse? Any of you kids? Come on. Help me out. It's got to start with C. Cantankerous are the children. Or simply not inspired enough. I don't know. Come on, can't anybody, any of the adults want to help me out? What's a, a seat, what? Caring. Caring what? Who wants to add to the verse? Caring for his people. That's funny, I had the same words in mind. Caring for his people. So we could write our own acrostic praise psalm to the Lord. We could write it in committee. It would take forever. David did it by himself. He didn't have to wait for the children. So now do you kids understand? We're going letter by letter through the alphabet, writing this psalm, but it's the Hebrew alphabet. And the translators did not try to bring the acrostic into English for us. They tried to bring across the translation better. And, and so you wouldn't know it unless somebody told you who knew Hebrew and was reading it in Hebrew and was like, hey, look, it's an acrostic. I didn't know it. I wasn't reading it in Hebrew until I read one of the commentaries and they said it's an acrostic. And I went and looked. Sure enough. Well, you know, verse 2. Okay, it's not, enti- it's, not, it's not a perfect acrostic for the record. It skips some of the letters. Okay, so now you know the story and you know the piece of information that is going to be kind of the most obvious thing to you that's going to stand out almost before you start reading if you were to read it in Hebrew. That kind of thing is just going to, it's going to jump out at you and you see A, B, C down the page, right? I kind of think that David was sick of acting wild and crazy. He was over it. And he wanted some order. And so he wrote it as an acrostic to show he's not actually insane. But this is a poetic thing. You'll still see people do this in English and various other languages to take, uh, to take an alphabet and to then begin to use that as part of the form of what you're writing. Okay, so we have this very orderly, not wild and crazy, psalm. And by the way, if you don't know it, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm by far, right? Psalm 119 is also an acrostic, but instead of just one verse starting, you've got sections for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 
Okay, so we've got a nice short acrostic to deal with today. Okay, so now you know all the important background stuff that you might not know unless you look closely. So what does David say in his nice, orderly psalm? Verses 1 and 2, he says, I praise the Lord. Verse 3, he says, you join me. One and two is, I praise the Lord. Three is, come on, you too. You should do it too. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Together. Why does David care that you join with him? And by the way, he does mean you because he wrote this down for all of the rest of the followers of God through the end of the world. It's been given to us. And so it's, he's, he's speaking to us from the grave. He says, I bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's not going to stop. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Why does he want you to join him? It's really simple. Because we like people to like the same things as us, don't we? We like people to like the same things as us. No, 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 try it. It's good. Enjoy it with me. It looks and smells disgusting. But try it. I promise you, you'll like it. No, I've tried it 17,000 times before growing up. I hate them. Oh, but it's so good. How could you possibly not like it? You must like it because, it's, because it's, it tastes that good. How could you not like it? It's delicious. I want you to enjoy it with me. Right? We argue with people about what they like. It's stupid, right? But not stupid here. Because there is no possible difference of opinion about the glory of the Lord. There is no possible difference of opinion about who God is and whether he is worthy of praise. Now, you might say, but there is difference of opinion. Yes, there is, isn't there? There are people who refuse to join David in glorifying the Lord. There are people who refuse to bless his name. But how could they? How could they? Look at what he did for David. Verse 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. We know what his fears, some of his fears were, don't we? He was afraid he was going to in Gath. Just like he had cut off Goliath's head. 
with Goliath's sword. He thought maybe Goliath's sword was going to get turned on him finally. But what happened? He sought the Lord. And he answered. Delivered him from all his fears. Now, verse 4 there. All my fears. I want you to skip forward to verse 6. The end of verse 6 says, Saved him out of all his troubles. All his troubles. And if you skip all the way forward to verse 17, All their troubles is what it says. Delivers them out of all their troubles. And verse 19 is speaking of the afflictions of the righteous. And it says the Lord delivers him out of them all. You've got this repetition. <clears throat> and then verse 20, we've got one, one last. He keeps all his bones. Okay, so there's this repetition throughout this psalm of this declaration that God saves from all the troubles. All of them. Okay. Now, we're going to come back to that, but I want you to see it right there, starting in verse 4. We, we, we hear <clears throat> the first time about how the Lord delivered from all his fears. But it's not just him. It's not just David that was delivered. Verse 5 Switches from I to they. They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. And then, verse 6, he's back to talking about himself. This poor man, this poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. There it is again. And then verse 7 switches back to talking about all of us. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now, have you guys ever been at a campfire? Okay. Typically at a campfire you sit Around it, right? Why do you sit around the fire? Is it to protect the fire? No. You don't sit around the fire to protect the fire, right? You sit around the fire because the fire is giving off warmth and everybody wants to be close and look at the fire. But the Lord encamps around his people, have you ever been at the fire and looked behind you in the woods and realized you can't see back there? I think it wasn't that long ago I was talking about being scared in the woods in one of my sermons. So we're, we're back on the same theme. The woods can be a scary place. Especially when you can't see what's out there. And if you grow up and you begin to begin 
to uh, be slightly more reasonable, you realize that there's really nothing dangerous in the woods, probably, right? But you might still run into the house if you're the last one out there. Did you know that the Lord encamps around? He surrounds. Who does he surround? Those who fear him and rescues them. Because actually there are things that are dangerous to us. We do need to be rescued. If you think about the reality of David's life at that time, if he was in the woods and there weren't people encamped around him guarding him, he could die any day, any night. Because Saul was out hunting him with his army. And so David needed protection around him. All the way around him. And you know what? He doesn't say, Blessed be Adino the Esnite and the mighty men. He doesn't say, Uriah the Hittite, the glorious warrior, who encamps around me with his men to protect me. They were there. They camped around him. But you know what else he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I will bless the great plan that I came up with to act like a crazy man. For it saved me out of the hands of the king of Gath. It's a good thing I practiced acting when I was seven. No, what does he say? He doesn't doesn't take credit for his plan for his salvation from the king of Gath any more than he gives credit to his warrior band that surrounded him. All of the credit for his salvation and his safety out of all of his troubles, all of the credit goes to God. Isn't that amazing? God gets all the credit for all the salvation. Did God use David's drool to save him? Yeah. Did he use his mighty men to save him? Yeah. God used many, many things to save David. Just as he has used many, many things in his great mercy to protect us. If we were to go around the room right now and ask for testimonies of times that God has used crazy things, unexpected things to save us, we'd hear amazing stories of physical salvation 
and we would praise the name of the Lord. But if we were to go around and, and ask for things where it was, it seemed like we could take the credit, like, oh yeah, and I, I put my seatbelt on first. And so thankfully I was okay. No. We would still praise the Lord, wouldn't we? I hope that you would still give all of the credit for all of the salvation to God. Because he's the one who uses seatbelts. Just like he's the one who uses drool, and he's the one who uses warriors. Some things seem crazy, other things seem normal. But either way, God is the one who's bringing about your salvation. And so, David praises the Lord and tells you to join him. And then he says, the Lord saved me and you, us. The Lord saved us in verses 4 through 7. And so, in verses 8 through 10, you have this glorious call, again, to, to, to experientially join him. And he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So now we get back to that, like, food, right? <laughs> taste and see that coffee is good. Come on, can't you taste and see that coffee is good? Well, some of you can, and some of you can't, right? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can all see. You can all taste. It's not a question of your particular genetics, your particular growing up. It's, it's a question of, is it true that God saves his people? Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. This last week, my family without me watched planet Earth. Did I mention planet Earth last week? I think that they watched one last week too. <clears throat> Without me. Maybe. Anyway, I remember watching this one at some point years ago. Lions. Lions attacking and eating an elephant. It's monstrous. It's horrific. It's awesome. It's glorious. It's dramatic. It's all that. But you know, lions don't attack and eat elephants unless they are desperate. Because it's dangerous to attack an elephant. I don't recommend any of you try it. If an elephant steps on you, you die. You just get squashed, that's it. Right? If an elephant steps on a lion, bye bye lion. 
verse 10, says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So David is reminding us that even the king of the jungle, the king of the animals, the lion, the young ones that are strong, even they suffer hunger. But God doesn't allow his children to want any good thing. Now, that might sound crazy to you. It's almost as though, as one of the commentators put it, the psalmist is proving too much. But the rest of this psalm makes clear that he's not proving too much. That actually he does... The Lord does provide every good thing. Come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Do you you want to live? Do you want things to be good? It's simple. Do good. He, he says, verses 13, 14, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's his, that's his answer. Come children, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord and here's what it looks like. Obey. Do good. Be good. Depart from evil and do good. Now right here, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. And again, if you pay attention to the cross-references, you'll find it. Or if you read your Bible, and read it, and read it, and read it, and read it, you'll be reading in Peter one time, and you'll be like, oh, oh, I recognize that. that that's got to be from one of the psalms. What psalm is that? So here's, here's what it says in 1 Peter 3, 10 through 12. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For, so this quote goes past what I just have read. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. And his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So now I read it in Peter. Go back to the psalm. In verse 15, 
it says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. Why does that matter? Why does the psalmist bring that up after telling us how we're to behave? Peter makes it clear with the addition of one word. The word is for or because, depending on your translation. That one little word helps us understand the psalm better. David does some, I mean, Peter does some helpful interpretation for us by giving us that extra word for. What are we to do? Depart from evil and do good. Why? Because or for the face of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. This is kind of circular. A circle is very orderly. David is not lacking sense in being circular. But the, but the circle is this. Do praise the Lord because he has rescued. He has saved. Right? And then fear the Lord do good because his face is towards the righteous. Right? But you have to be righteous. Either to be saved in the first place or to have his eyes towards you. And here's the thing, none of us are. We know we don't deserve to have his eyes towards us. Or if they are, we're afraid of what his eyes will see. We're afraid that it will be the face of the Lord is against those who do evil because we know the evil that we have done. And this is where it's beautiful that we have this theme throughout the psalm that all your fears, all your troubles, troubles, afflictions, and now all of a sudden you realize, no, the psalmist, David, hasn't, hasn't been stupid in saying that God will save you from all the afflictions he hasn't proved too much. He knows there are afflictions. Think about the context. The context is David being afflicted with enemies surrounding him on every side. His people trying to kill him. His father-in-law trying to kill him. His enemies still trying to kill him. The Philistines. Everybody's trying to kill him. The afflictions are all over the place. The context unless you've forgotten it, right, makes it abundantly clear 
that David knows exactly what he's talking about when he says that God saves from everything, right? And he's not, he's not making the claim that there won't be troubles. As a matter of fact, many are the afflictions of the righteous, verse 19 says. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David knew it. He knew it well. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds nice, but he hasn't delivered me out of all my afflictions. I've still suffered. What about all my suffering? Is this psalm false because I suffer? Now, the simple answer to that is no. We can tell immediately that the promise here is not that there will be no suffering. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, right? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. <clears throat> but let me ask you a question. You want to ask about your suffering, or maybe the suffering of someone you love, as reason to be angry at God, as reason to condemn God and say his promises are false. His salvation isn't sure. He doesn't encamp around because look at what happened. Look what happened to me. Look what happened to my sister. Look what happened to my brother. Look what happened to my mom, my dad. Why does God let bad things happen to good people, right? That's the... If he's there... Well, he must not be, or he doesn't care. What about all my suffering? What about all our suffering? And my answer to that is, what about Jesus' suffering? What about Jesus' suffering? And I'm not... I'm not jumping out of context. Verse 20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And that is talking directly about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ, our Savior, and his suffering. Not one of his bones was broken, but he suffered terribly. And that's exactly the point. Though he suffered even to death on the cross, God still made sure his bones weren't broken. Why? It's because of this promise in this verse. Because as we saw last week, he keeps his word. It is sure. You can rely on it. And so when he says that he's going to keep his righteous one from having any of his bones broken, there's no bones broken. Okay, fine, but what about me? I had a broken bone once, right? What about me? 
if I'm not the righteous one that he's talking about here, if I can't rely on him to not keep, you know, for, for my bones, what's the good of this promise? Why did Jesus suffer? We know God kept his promise about the bones not being broken. Not a one of them, right? And the New Testament points it out to remind us of this promise and the way God keeps his word so that his word would be fulfilled. What about your suffering? Does it prove that you aren't one of his children if you suffer? No. No more than Jesus' suffering proved that he wasn't one of his children, right? He was the Son of God and he suffered. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Delivers them out of all their troubles. Keeps all his bones. Delivers him out of all their afflictions, all their troubles, all their fears. The Lord will deliver you out of them all, just like he did for David. Just like he did for David. And so, did God deliver David? He did. He delivered him from the Philistines, from the king of Gath. He delivered him from Saul. But did he prevent him from suffering in any way, shape, or form? No. So now let me ask you, what is the promise that David is reminding us of in this psalm? Because I tell you what we want it to be is that if you put your faith in him, you'll get a gold watch, a nice benefits package, your retirement will be easy and healthy. Your children will all outlive you. And there won't be any suffering in your life anymore. In fact, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise from that point on. That'd be, that'd be a nice promise, right? But is that the promise that we have here? It's not. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want. To back up a few verses. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want. The lions might be in want. They who seek the Lord shall not be in want. And so... The promise of the Lord here is also the reason why we fear the Lord here. Because he rescues his children. This is not an uncommon theme in the Bible. It might be new and strange to you. But let me give you another example. Psalm 130 verse 4. There is, the psalmist is speaking to God and the psalmist says, There is forgiveness with you. There's forgiveness with the Lord. That you may be feared.
or because he rescues his children, we're to fear him. Here we have it. It's very, very simple. God has promised salvation. Deliverance from every trouble and trial. Not a promise that there will be no suffering, but a promise that he will carry you through it. There is forgiveness with him so that he may be feared. He rescues his children and so we fear him. And what does he rescue us from? Ultimately, he rescues us from what our sins deserve. And by pointing us back to this psalm in the New Testament, we are reminded of what's really going on in this psalm. When the Holy One's bones are not broken, and we see Him suffer, the actual wrath of God and the punishment that our sins deserve, so that we will not, so that we might be rescued. And so our rescue is complete. And it's from everything. Every last sorrow, every last suffering, every last trial. And in the end, we will be with him in paradise where there is no more sorrow or sickness or death. And it will be complete. And you couldn't ask for anything better. But it is only for those who fear him. And so this is why David writes this psalm. To point us to God so that we would look to him for our salvation. Not that we would think, well, you know, as long as I, as long as I keep my acting skills up, I can get myself out of scrapes. As long as I keep my army strong enough, It'll all be good. I'll be rescued in the end. No, because as the New Testament writers point out to us, David died. His grave is with us today. His bones went down into the earth, right? Does that mean that God's promise failed him? No, it means that the promise was greater even than death. That death is one of those things that he will rescue us out of. So do we have something to praise him for? Can we join David in singing? Oh yeah. We've got something to sing about. So when David says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and then he says to us, oh, magnify the Lord with me. If you've been saved, you can't help but join in.